I want to start by just saying thank you. I know last week Jerry was able to share a little bit of our story. We were in Viroqua last week, and I was preaching at the Evangelical Free Church, candidating to be uh, one of the pastors at their church. So thank you for praying. Many of you have asked me how it's gone, and um, we're excited to hear this afternoon uh, the results, the news from uh, their congregational vote. Um, but I don't know if he warned you or not, but you have to listen to me for two weeks. <laughs> Jerry's going to be in Hawaii visiting family, so lucky him, right? Um, but start, uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 4, if you want to turn there. Um, but 1887, 1887, it's not a year, but 1,887, that's how many languages have at least the New Testament. Now, Grant kind of shared earlier, there are almost 3,000 languages. There are many people who have yet to receive a portion of the scriptures. But 1,887, that's quite a few. It's 5.7 billion people. Now, uh, statistics tell us that there's over 7 billion people, so we're, we're quite a way there. Um, the question is, why, why is that so important you know, all these people put in the effort to translate scriptures into 1,887 languages. Well, further, we see that um, there are over 20,000 20, 20, manuscripts of the scriptures. Compare that to other ancient documents. There are almost 600 copies, manuscripts, of uh, Homer's Iliad, that's the next closest. So 20,000 copies of the scriptures and only 600 copies of the Iliad. Even further, the Iliad and other ancient scriptures, the earliest copy we have, or the furthest away from our present day, uh, is in 800 BC, or AD, excuse me. So roughly 1,000 years after those texts were written. The scriptures, however, we have from 130 AD. Roughly a hundred years after those events took place and those things were written. So my question is, why is it so important? Why is it so important that a hundred years after these events take place, we still have those copies? Why is it so important that we have 20,000 of these manuscripts that people have taken effort to translate into 1887 languages that 5.7 billion people can receive what is in our scriptures? Why is it so important? The answer is God wrote it. God wrote a book. God. God wrote a book. The creator God wrote a book. The guy who measured out the heavens with his hands, yet knows all of the hairs on your head. That guy wrote a book. The creator who made all things. He made heaven and earth and he wrote a book. The supreme being, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he knows everything, he's everywhere, and he's all-powerful. He wrote a book. And this book further is said to be God's inspiration. It's God's breath. Further, we see in Second Peter that God used the authors of Scripture by the Holy Spirit carrying them along. So we see that God is very involved in this process. It's not just God just said, here, I'm going to write this book, and these authors are going to write it. But he is very involved in the words. Not only the words, but Matthew 5.18 tells us that the parts of the words, the iotas and the eyes, the smallest parts of Scripture, the Creator, the Supreme Being God, is very concerned about this 
book. That is why it's important. But, but why did he write a book? If he is a creator and he's a supreme being, why did he write a book? Did he write a book as a creator, as a how-to book, you know, for us dummies? <laughs> here's how everything works. Here's how gravity works. And here's how you make a car go. And here's how uh, you breathe. And here's how all these things work in facts and equations. Here's the equation for this. Is it a how-to book? Did, did our creator give us a how-to book? Or as a supreme being, did he just declare and say, this is it. This is what I'm declaring. I'm the supreme being, and here you go. Here's, here's what I've done. Here's the future, and you just get to sit and watch it happen. Well, I think it's a little bit of both. There's a little bit of how-to instruction. There's a little bit of God declaring, I'm supreme, and this is what's going to happen. But further, as supreme being and our creator, he has given us this revelation, not only of what he's done, but of who he is. See, the Bible is important not because just because God wrote it, but because it tells us who this God is so that we can know him, so that we can have a relationship with him, with God, with this creator, the supreme being. Um, I'm going to share with you a quote from Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks was actually one of Jerry's professors, so I'm sure he'll appreciate this. Um, you have to know a little bit about Howard Hendricks. He was kind of a wily, kind of fun, charismatic, not charismatic in that sense, but a charismatic kind of guy. Um, he says, The Bible was written not to satisfy your curiosity, but to help, you, to help conform you to Christ's image. Not to make you a smarter sinner, but to make you more like the Savior. Not to fill your head with a collection of biblical facts, but to transform your life. So that's why we have this word. And before we go there, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to pray and communicate with you. I ask now that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear what you would have to teach us this morning from this great book, your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for its sustenance, its constancy in our lives, that it's always there and that it's faithful, that you are faithful. Thank you for being with us this morning, and I ask that you would protect us from any distractions and hindrances, any words that I may speak that are unhelpful or false that you would take away from our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning, and from this great scripture, we're going to answer the question, what is biblical mission? Now, you had an opportunity to watch that video on perspectives, and uh, maybe I could have just let Grant stay up here talking. He had a lot to share, and, and thanks, Grant, for sharing. Um, excited to hear about what's going on in your life, and, and with that opportunity, I encourage you all to consider perspectives. Um, but this morning, we have one uh, half-hour session to hear about what is biblical mission. And so we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the first six verses, and follow along with me. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But have re- we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. 
We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to break down these six verses and we're going to ask the question, answer the question, what is biblical mission? So verse 1 we start and it says, therefore. Therefore. When you read a therefore in scripture, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? Why is he saying therefore? What's the context? Um, We can easily find the context uh, reading the whole um, chapter 3 of this uh, text, but we're just going to read the last verse, verse 18. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, therefore, since we no longer have a veil, uh, he's referring back to Moses, and Moses veiled himself when he brought the Ten Commandments because his glory was so great. We don't have the veil. Since we have an unveiled face, since we can see and reflect that image of God, therefore, having this ministry. I love how he says that, this ministry. Did you notice that? It's kind of important. It's not, and my ministry. My ministry. You see, in this context of what's going on in 2 Corinthians, Paul is having to defend his ministry from other preachers. You see, the ancient city of Corinth was built upon, in the Roman age, it was built upon a number of retired generals and uh, other nations, Jews and and other people would come there. And they praised and worshipped and honored people who were good rhetoricians, who had good rhetoric, who could talk well, who could speak well. And so Paul here is having to defend his ministry, his teaching ministry, from other teachers' ministry. But he says, this ministry, not my ministry. And I appreciate that because it could have, he could have easily said, my ministry. Paul wrote this letter in about 55 AD, about five years after he wrote the letter to the Galatian church. He wrote, he, he wrote a letter to the Galatian churches. He was a missionary. He could have just said, I'm a, I'm a missionary, Look at me, guys. I'm a missionary. This is my ministry. I'm traveling around your area and teaching the word of God. This is my ministry. But no, he says, this ministry. He's affecting us back to uh, chapter 3 where he defines this ministry as the ministry of the new covenant, the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of righteousness. And moving ahead into chapter 5, he calls it the ministry of reconciliation, Now, we could have marketed those terms and used them here, but he just simply defines it as this ministry. Biblical mission is not about 
what we want to do, but it's about what God wants to do. Next he says, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. Now, when I read that, I thought that was rather interesting. Because when I often think of having things, I often think of having them by the grace of God instead of by the mercy of God. You see, the difference between mercy and grace is mercy is often considered that God is withholding things that I do deserve because of my sinfulness. And, and grace is God is giving me things that I don't deserve. But here we see that he has this ministry by the mercy of God. How great is that mercy, that sovereign mercy of God who has decided that Paul is adequately fit. And we, by extension, he says, we all with unveiled face, we all are fit to have this ministry. This is our ministry. He continues, having this ministry, and therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Well, we just read about how exciting the Bible is and how important it is, and this ministry is not really from us, but it's from God. Why would you even say that you are losing heart? Why would you even consider it? What, what, what part of that has to do with what we're talking about? Why would you lose heart? Uh, turn a little bit, one page to your left in my scriptures anyway, uh, to chapter 1, verse 8. Why would you lose heart, Paul? He writes to them in Chapter 1, verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Why lose heart? Why lose heart when you're in this ministry? The answer is because there are people who are against this ministry. So much so that they were attacking, physically attacking Paul and the other disciples. Why lose heart? I think it's kind of exciting that he even has a heart to lose. He has a passion in the first place to be able to lose it. You see, you can't lose a heart if you don't have a heart. Sadly, I think there are so many of us who don't understand what it means to not lose heart because we don't fully have a heart for this ministry do, do you have a heart for doing God's ministry? Do you understand what it means to do this ministry at all costs? Attack, persecution, accusation, blame. Paul continues on and he tells us what he does in terms of bringing this biblical mission into the people who God has given him to reach. He says in verse 2, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. He says, but, there's a transition. But I have, I have this passion to stand firm, to have conviction, and to renounce. You know what renounce means? Renounce is the opposite of announce. Announce means to say something, to proclaim something, to, to tell a story, to make an announcement. You come up here and Luke did that. He said, this is what's going on. To renounce something means to stand against it and verbally say no. It's saying no. It's not just everybody over there is saying this and I know it's not right, but I'm just not going to participate. Renouncing it says that is wrong. 
no to that. that. Whatever that is, is wrong. There is a right way and a wrong way, and I'm going to call out, I'm going to renounce what is wrong. He defines that here as, in the ESV translation, disgraceful and underhanded ways. Uh, some translations say hidden ways of, sh- ways of shame or secretive ways. Now, uh, what he's saying in context here is that there were preachers who would go and, and give a message and deliver a message and have their hand underneath looking for the payout, you know? <laughs> there's a, a secret. There's something hidden behind their message. Paul's saying, no, that's wrong. We renounce that. But I love this, this word, secret, uh, used in, in the NIV. He said, we have renounced secretive ways. You see, secret, when, we, when there are things that are, we're wanting to keep secret, we're wanting to keep them in the dark. We're wanting to keep them hidden. We don't want them to be exposed to the light, but we won't, rather we want to keep them in the dark. And this opens for us a major theme of this text, major theme of what biblical mission, I think, is, is a contrast between darkness and light. And we'll see that as we move forward. So how does he renounce these deceitful ways, these secretive ways, these ways of darkness? First, he says, we refuse to practice cunning. Now, cunning, uh, that's kind of a silly word. Uh, I like the word craft. Um, Craft, uh, my wife likes to do craft. Amanda likes to do crafts. And what she does with crafts is she takes a bunch of different things and puts them all together and makes something that looks nice. I don't have the ability to do that. But she takes all things and makes them look, appear, to be something that's desirable or something fit for whatever she's wanting to, to use it for. She is crafting it. Uh, another uh, translation, an older translation, says conniving. We don't really use that word anymore, but conniving means you're kind of being mischievous and, and deceitful. Literally, what the Greek word means, of the word cunning, it's translated all to do the work. So literally, we refuse to practice all to do the work. What he's saying is, we refuse to put everything together so that we can get a result that we want. There are those who practice the handling of the Scripture, whose ways are secretive. What they do is they add everything together to make it look appealing, to craft it in a way that fits what their needs are. So that's the first way. The second way, he says, or to tamper with God's word. To tamper or to corrupt or to falsify or to add to. Uh, You see, when you have a a corrupt sample of something, let's say you're taking a a DNA sample uh, or a, a blood sample of something and somebody else adds another substance, well, that's that sample now is corrupt. That's literally what this translation word means, to tamper with. So what these other ministers were doing, these preachers who Paul was condemning and calling out and saying, this is what is wrong, we are not doing this, we are not adding things in to tamper or to to corrupt, because we are not crafting it. The problem is, so so why, why do people do that? Why are there those who want to be crafty or to desire to tamper with these things? 
The problem is not so much with those who are doing those things. Yes, they are accountable for their actions, and they're being deceived themselves. They're accountable, but yes, they're being deceived through their, through their false beliefs. But the problem is also us, not necessarily us here, but the audience. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warns Timothy and says that in the last days, there will be people who will look for preachers or teachers to tickle their ears. They will have itching ears. So they will look for these people who tell them what they want to hear. Our problem, the problem with this is is not just their teaching, but the problem that we have in our society today is that there are so many consumers of Christianity. People who are just looking to hear just the right thing. I have this problem and I want the Bible to fix it, so Bible teacher, tell me, what's the answer? That's, that's our problem with our day. Paul says we refuse to do that. We, in fact, renounce it. We say that is wrong. So, What's the right way? Paul, what's the answer? How do you handle these problems? He continues on and he says, But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. But by the open statement. You see how directly opposite that is of the secretive closed ways? It's open. It's exposed. Literally what this word means is to shine forth. It's like you open a a door to a room that has the lights on and boom, there's the light expanding. It's open. And what is open? It's the open statement of the truth. The statement of the truth. I think that's very significant for Paul's ministry. It's not just the living out of the truth. It's not just the acting out of the truth. It's not just the praying for other people to accept the truth. Rather, it is the statement of the truth. Additionally, he says the truth. Not just a truth, but the truth. And that is so important, that there is the truth truth, an absolute, sealed, given by God truth, not just a relative truth. Well, this may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Paul's saying, we declare, we state what is the truth. Specifically, what I think he's trying to get at is how the gospel interweaves through all of Scripture. He's saying that we handle God's word in a way so that we can make the truth of the gospel clear. So he continues on. In verse 3 and 4, we see some discouragement to this biblical mission. Even though we're exposing truth, even though we have renounced wrong ways, we have said these ways are wrong, there will be those who do not accept that. Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, I want you to stop and listen to that word, perishing. Perishing. 
perishing. The gospel, the open statement of the truth, the thing that is so important, is somehow veiled from people who are perishing. They're dead. Ephesians chapter 2 defines their position, their stance, as being dead, being objects of wrath, following the course of this world and the prince of the world of the air, and obeying the passions of their flesh. They are perishing. He defines for us what, it, what, it, what their problem is. He says in verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So we see a parallel there. The, the per, those who are perishing are those who are unbelievers. Now that's an interesting word, unbelievers. Meaning that they don't believe what the truth is. And why? Why is it that they don't believe what the truth is? Well, Paul tells us here, the God of this world has blinded their minds. The God of this world has blinded their minds. How do you feel about that? Does that threaten you? Does that put you in at a, at a stance of feeling uncomfortable? It should. There is a God of this world who is blinding the minds of unbelievers, your friends, your family, people who you work with, people who you do your hobbies with, countless people all over the world. The God of this world has blinded their minds. Now we're saying that there's a, a key theme here between darkness and light. And here again we see darkness. The God of this world, Satan, works darkness through blinding our minds. Now what does it mean to be blind? Does it just mean like legally blind? Like, okay, I don't have 20-20 vision. It's not perfect, but I can kind of see things and they're fuzzy. They just don't really make sense. It's cloudy. No, it's blind. It can't see at all totally dark in their mind. It doesn't, nothing makes sense. They're blind. Unbelievers are blind. Where are they blind? Blinding in their minds. You see, even though Satan kind of makes us uncomfortable, that there's a God of this world and it makes us uncomfortable, we need to know about him. What we know about him is that he works through deception. That is his work. It's only through deception. God can't reach, sorry, excuse me, Satan can't reach into our hearts and blind our hearts. He can only blind our minds through deception. Specifically, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They can't see it at all. However, as believers, we need to be aware that Satan works through his deception to gain footholds into our lives. Now, these are areas in our mind where we are being deceived, where we are being satis- think that our satisfaction, that our desires are being fil- fulfilled wrongly in ways that are sin. You see, Satan can deceive believers in our minds through deception, but we're not totally lost. We're not totally blinded. 
That is because, uh, as we read on, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, believers have already seen that. Believers know that. We have a protection in that, a security in that. We're safe in that we have seen the light. Unbelievers haven't seen the light. Now, what does that mean? So we're talking about dark and light. In the Greek, there are two different senses or words for light, for our one word, English word, light. The first is phos, just like a light, a physical radiance of something that gives off a light, a light bulb or a flashlight or a fire or the sun. It is light. There's, there's some radiance to it. The second word has, has the sense of enlightenment or illumination or understanding to bring light in your mind to something that is dark. Now, how does Paul use these words here? He says, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, what light do you think that is? Do you think that's the radiance light, the light bulb light, or do you think that's the illumination, the enlightenment? Well, the answer is that Satan, since he works through deception, can only deceive us. He can only tempt us and keep us from seeing the illumination, the understanding, the enlightenment of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, there's a distinction between what Satan can do and what God has already done. There's two differences between light in terms of understanding or illumination and light in terms of radiance or a light bulb. We see that very clearly in John chapter 1. Now, it's the Christmas season, and I'm guessing some of you have been reading through the account of Jesus' birth John chapter 1, he doesn't give the genealogy and the story there like we may think. But in John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And indeed has already come. The true light, that is the light, the radiance, the glory of God. Satan can't stop God or anyone from seeing that light. God reveals that light and has revealed that light in Jesus. Paul very, excuse me, John very clearly illustrates what's the difference is between the light in terms of the radiance, the true light, and the enlightenment, the true light which enlightens everyone. So even though we may be discouraged, discomforted by what Satan does and can do, we can rightly understand that he is limited in only distorting, blinding the minds of unbelievers in our, in our minds. So what do we do about that? He continues on in verse 5. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. What we proclaim is not ourselves. 
See, that's so important because the problem is the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. The God of this world. Well, what is this world? What is this world primarily about? This world without God is primarily about self. All reveals around the self. Even if you look at other religions, it's about self. How can I get to God? Christianity is the only religion that says God has come to you. The whole world revolves around the self. So what do we do? What is biblical mission? Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. It's not ourselves. But Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ as Lord. Does that make you uncomfortable in yourself? That Jesus Christ is the Lord. See, the world wants to make itself the Lord, its master, its ruler. Our ministry, this ministry, what we proclaim to be a biblical mission is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is ruler, that he is master, that he is supreme. Now, I want to, I want to pull back and, and, and look at why did Paul initially say that he lost heart? If Jesus is Lord, why does, why does, say, why does he say that he doesn't lose heart? Well, remember, because he was being attacked and persecuted. So many times in, in our age, and myself included, uh, we find that the preaching that is done and what people are believing is that Jesus is the Christ. And not that he is the both Christ and the Lord. You often heard, have heard it said that Jesus has died for your sins, that he is your Savior, that he is your Christ. And that is true. He needs to be that. And we focus on the death of Jesus Christ and the cross, and that is foundational to Christianity. But equally foundational, equally important to what we proclaim is that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is Lord. Our Savior has become the King. And see, when I first became a believer, I didn't quite understand that. I was 10 years old, and a good friend of mine, had, who was 10, also 10 years old, passed away very suddenly from a brain tumor. I'd known all of the stories of Christianity, of the Bible, and I could have pointed out all the answers to you. When he died, I needed to make a decision for eternity, because I knew that eternity was real at that point. Heaven or hell? Well, how do I get to heaven? I want to go to heaven. Well, believe that Jesus has died for your sins. Yes, believe that Jesus has died for your sins, and you will get to heaven. So that's what I believed. I fully believed that and accepted that. Jesus was my Savior. He died for my sins, and I understood that. It took a long time for me to come to understand what it means also that Jesus is Lord, that he is the ruler, the director, the master of my life. And I think we have a problem with our gospel if we're not proclaiming both. Do you agree? 
Many of you have come to understand that Jesus died for your sins, and that is good. And then you get to the next point, that Jesus now needs to be your Lord. You give everything over to him. You surrender to him. The gospel is both. It's understanding both. It's not just a cross that you wear around your neck and say, yes, Jesus died for me, but it's also a throne. What if you wore a throne on your necklace or a throne earrings? Would that help you tell the gospel better? Jesus right now is on a throne. He's not on a cross anymore. He left the cross and he rose. The death of Jesus is important. That he is our Savior is ultimately important. But that he is Lord is equally as important. Let's not leave that out from our gospel. He goes on and he says, Ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You see, when we come to rightly understand the gospel, that Jesus is both Christ and Lord, we understand our position in humility. We understand and can proclaim and tell others, I'm here as Jesus' servant. He is the master, not me. If our preaching doesn't include that, whether through our words, through what we proclaim, or through our actions that we are here to serve, our gospel isn't saying a whole lot, is it? So I don't know many of you right now if you could say that Jesus is your Lord. Paul tells us in in Romans 10, chapter 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you can do it now and we'll be saved. Or, Paul tells the Philippian church in chapter 2, verse 11, that every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will confess that Jesus is Lord. So you can do it now and be saved, or you can do it later, and who knows? Maybe you won't be saved. Every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is master, that he is king, See, the problem with this world is that we constantly want to focus on ourselves, And the gospel tears that down. The gospel says that we have a king who came to this earth in Jesus, who lived a life, died on a cross, was buried, and rose. That's the gospel that Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. He says it was according to the scriptures. He's not mishandling the scriptures or adding anything to it or tampering with it or crafting it in any way, but he's being open. That's the, that's the gospel. Our gospel wants to put ourselves into it. We want to add to it. We want to add to the gospel that the gospel is this happened, that there's a king who came to the world who died a death for our sins, who was buried and rose again. We want to add to that that you must believe and you must repent. Those are correct responses to the gospel, but that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is just the open statement of what the truth is. We want to add ourselves to it. I like how Jerry Bridges tells me, he's one of my favorite authors, 
He said, God wants us to walk in obedience, not in victory. God wants us to walk in obedience, not in victory. Obedience is focused on God. Victory is focused on self. How many times have you heard a gospel that just declares your victory and is simply focused on yourself? God wants you to walk in obedience to who he is because he is the Lord. All right, one more verse. We'll finish this up. God is the Lord from the very beginning. Paul pulls it way back. You think you know, you think you're important? God, this creator, the supreme being, made all that is light. He says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He's directly tying it right back into Genesis 3, when God said, let there be light. Before there was nothing, and there was something, because God made it to be something. God said, let there be light. The Lord, our God, said, let there be light. Paul ties it forward and he says, God has said, let, there be, let the light shine out of darkness in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, God has revealed, God has shown us this light, this radiance, the supreme being, the quality, his glory of who he is. He has shown us that light in our hearts, nothing that Satan can get to. He has shown it in our hearts so that we have the light, the illumination, the understanding of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, when we understand that Jesus, that God is our creator, not only just the creator of all things, but the creator of us in the new creation, us who believe in the new creation, God has shown in our hearts to give us the understanding, the illumination. What does that mean? He gives that to us. And that is that he is a glorious, that he is God. So we've been asking this question, what is biblical mission? Biblical mission is simply proclaiming the gospel. Simply proclaiming the gospel. I have, I have a couple applications steps that you may want to take to get involved in the mission. The first is, get in the Word. Get in the Word. You don't want to tamper with it. You don't want to be cunning. You don't want to be crafting it. You don't want to be adding to it or being secretive with it. You want to know what the gospel is, who God is. You need to get in the Word to understand those things. That's where He has revealed Himself to us. The second is pray. The second is pray. I say pray because God who said, let light 
shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts. God does the work. God wants to do the work. He is involved, hands-on, very specific. And when we pray to him, we communicate to him our desire for our unbelieving, perishing friends and family to be saved. We can pray to God to do that because he wants to, and he is the one who does it, not us specifically. Lastly, share. So get in the word, pray, and share. There are so many people in this world just focusing on themselves. Even us at times can be tempted to just focus on ourselves. Would you take some time this week to share the gospel message with somebody, maybe even somebody here, to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is what's most important. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we've read in your word, scripture that you have given to us, We're thankful for the heart, the passion, the desire that we can have to be a part of your mission. There are many of us here who might be tempted, who might be losing heart. I pray that you would strengthen, that you would convict, that you would help them to stand firm in your word. And I pray that you would help us to be mindful of this gospel, that we can rightly handle it so that the world, that those who are perishing can know. God, give us opportunities to be bold, yet compassionate. Give us opportunities to share the open statement of the truth to people who are in darkness, to people who are dead. For your glory, Jesus, in your name, amen.